Long time ago, there were a bunch of shepherds who were in the service of the king of Lydia. They were out watching their flocks, <clears throat> sort of like those Hebrew shepherds of old when Jesus was born. They were out in the fields and a great storm came up. And after the storm, there was an earthquake, and the earthquake was so bad that it opened up a hole, a big crevice in the earth, right where they were feeding their flocks. They were all amazed. And one of the shepherds decided to go down into the opening where, among other miraculous things, he looked to see a hollow brass horse that had doors, at which he stooped and looked in and saw a dead body, a big, big dead body. More than human, maybe not human. And it wasn't wearing anything except a gold ring. And because the, dead bo the body was dead, he took the ring from the finger and came up out of the hole. So the shepherds, looking at this, got together, and it came around time, according to their custom, that they would send their monthly report about their sheep to the king. And so the shepherd, with the ring, came into the assembly. He was wearing it now. And as he sat there through long, endless, boring reports about sheep and lambs, he fiddled with the ring and turned the collet inside of his hand and instantly became invisible to the rest of the company, and they started talking about him as though he was not there. And then when he turned the collet the other way, miraculously, he reappeared. Whereupon, he contrived and conspired that he might be one of the regular messengers to the king. And with the ring in hand, he would arrive, and eventually he seduced the queen, and with her help, conspired against the king and killed him and took over the kingdom. Does that story sound familiar? Well, that's Plato's Republic, chapter 2, in which he talks about justice. And the point is, that what you would do if you were invisible reveals something about who you are. And if you didn't know it, I have it on good authority that that story is the basis for Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That's where it comes from. But suppose there were not eight rings, but suppose there were just two. Suppose that a just man put on one of the rings and an unjust man put on the second ring. No one can be imagined to be of such stalwart character that he would stand fast in doing right. Plato says no man would keep his hands off what was not his own if he could safely take what he liked out of the market without being seen or kill or release someone from prison or in all respects be more or less like a god among people. Plato asserts that the actions of the just would be as the actions of the unjust. They would both, in the end, come to the same point. Yes, the ring would corrupt. We conclude, Plato says, that a man is just not willingly or because he thinks that justice is any good to him individually, but it's necessary for wherever anyone thinks that he can safely be unjust, he will be. 
Because everyone believes in their hearts that injustice is far more profitable than justice. If you can imagine obtaining this power of becoming invisible and never doing anything wrong or never touching what was another, Plato says you would be an idiot. That's his word. And everybody around you would praise you to your face and keep up appearances with one another, but only because they were afraid that you, if you were invisible, would do them injustice. So they would talk nicely about you. We're all concerned about justice, and Plato, hundreds of years ago, crystallizes the question of whether a human being left to the possibility of non-discovery would commit injustice to his advantage. Ask yourself, if you had a ring that made you invisible, would you use it for mischief? What a man is internally will determine what he would do if he had such a ring. But precisely because external norms do exist, it would be advantageous to have such a ring, particularly if you were set upon doing harm. Now, Plato is not the only one who talks about justice. The ancients were all about it and have been writing about it since men could write. The Bible is also concerned about justice, as is our prayer book. In fact, the reading of the gospel lesson today is specifically about justice, the familiar story of the owner of a vineyard who needs laborers, and he goes out at various times of the day, and he hires people to go into the vineyard and to work. And you know the story at the end of the day, the people who came out early, who were promised one thing, were given that, but the people who came out late were given the same thing, and the whole issue of justice comes sharply into focus. But that's not the only story in the context of Matthew. In fact, for two chapters, Matthew has been beating a drum about what is just and what is right and what is fair. The disciples, all the way back two chapters before, in chapter 18, verse 1, came to Jesus and said, get this, they said this to Jesus. Can you imagine saying this to Jesus? I cannot. They said it. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? That's pretty brassy, isn't it? Twenty verses later, Peter comes back and says, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus, of course, startled him by saying, Not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Or seventy times seven. Lots. Unlimited, really. Peter was looking for the question of justice. Six verses later, there was a servant in Jesus' story who had been forgiven a lot of money and went out, found another servant that owed him ten bucks and beat him up and threw him in prison until he should pay everything, saying to him, taking him by the throat, pay me everything you owe. Justice. Chapter 19 opens with the Pharisees posing a question of justice. Is it just or lawful to divorce your wife for any reason. Fifteen verses later, there's a rich lawyer who stands up and says to Jesus, what good deed would I have to do to earn eternal life? What would be justice? 
20 verses, no, 10 more verses later, Peter says to Jesus, again, the disciples are, are bold. Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? What would be just? And then in our text, in verse 12 of the gospel lesson, those who had been hired first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them only received a denarius or a penny, as it says in our King James, a day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master, saying, these last ones only worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. It's a question of justice. And then after this, down in verse 20, eight verses later, and this really, this really does take the cake, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, I think that would be James and John, came with her sons, knelt down before Jesus and asked him for something, and he said, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and the other one at your left in your kingdom. They deserve it. That's justice, right? We are all very tuned into getting our due and in some cases levering situations to our advantage. We're always expecting what we're supposed to get and we're never offended if we get more than we're supposed to get, but we're always offended if we don't get at least what we think we're supposed to get. Am I right? Of course. What a man is internally will determine what he would do if he had the ring, if he was able to work to his own advantage. Jesus comes back to all of these questions throughout the two chapters. And he says the issue of justice is really about being reshaped. The kingdom of God is about justice. It's all about justice. And it's going to be good and just because the God who made the world is good and just. He's not just just. He's also good. When the disciples came to ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, a painfully cringeworthy question Jesus' response was shocking. He called a little child, and he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never even get into the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So forget about greatness and forget about what you might be due. Let's just talk about basic entrance requirements. It's like being little. Now, I have middle schoolers in my charge, and they're always comparing themselves and competing for attention and greatness. They rank themselves. They all do it. They don't know it, but they all do it. We call it the brain's body bank uh, metric. We teach into it directly. They all know who the smartest person is in the class, and they think that person is at the top. They all know who the best athlete is, and they know who isn't. They know who's picked last at P.E., always. They take note, and they also know who has the most toys. They know who has a cell phone in middle school 
and who doesn't. And by the way, they don't all have them, moms and dads. So if your kid comes home and says, everybody has a cell phone, they're lying. <laughs> Brain's body bank, they're ranking themselves. They start, we start doing this as human beings very, very early. Jesus winds it back and says, let's take a wee little child. Let's take little Jane back there. What does little Jane know? She likes Cheerios. She doesn't know much about Jesus yet. But if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to be like Jane. How about that? Jesus winds it all the way back and says, start over. Forget about prestige. Let's talk about the unalloyed heart which can be shaped by the kingdom rather than the self-seeking heart that seeks its own advancement. In chapter 19, when another question like this came up, once again, children were brought to Jesus to lay his hands on them and to pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. The disciples were not kid-friendly. And Jesus said to them, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Do you want to get into the kingdom of God? Then you have to come as a little child. And if the disciples didn't understand this analogy, it wasn't likely that they could move forward. The next event in our context is about this rich lawyer who wanted to inherit eternal life. And you know the story. Jesus told him to keep the commandments and in particular to sell all of his goods and follow Jesus. And then Jesus turned to the disciples and made some commentary on it. He said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, well, who can be saved? And that's what prompted Peter's question. We've left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? They just couldn't shake the whole issue of justice. And they couldn't understand that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, it wouldn't be based on what you had done or what you deserved. It would be on the basis of being childlike or being so shaped that you could slip through the eye of a needle. Jesus said to them, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Well, there it is. Self-denial and self-abdication and abnegation. And then Jesus says this. He says it twice in the text. We heard it once. Here He says it here for the first time. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's a way of saying the highest will be low, and the lowest will be high. It means the same thing. And that brings us to the gospel lesson today, which is also familiar to you, where Jesus tells the story of a man who owns property with vines and he needs workers, which is really labor-intensive at certain times of the year. So he went out to the labor pool, out into the market, and he found some people, and 
he agreed with them that he would pay them their wage for the day. And as you know, he repeated this at 9 o'clock, and he went back out at noon, and then he went back out at 3 o'clock, and then he went out just before quitting time. And when the day was over, he lined them all up, and this is important, he lined them all up with the ones who had been there the least amount of time. They got first in line as if Jesus wanted everyone to see that they got paid the same thing. This is the first story we have in human history about the wage gap crisis and income inequality. And they noticed. Because all the workers who had been there all day long were paid what they had agreed to be paid, but they were indignant that the others were paid the same amount. The response is something, and you... And you're supposed to have this response when you hear this parable or when you read it. You are supposed to go, which is what you would do if your employer did this. It's exactly how you would respond. The early workers got their just payment. It wasn't as though they were not paid and their wages appropriated to the late workers Here we have not the perversion of justice, but we do have the inversion of justice. No injustice is perpetrated upon the early workers, but it's clear that the later workers are shown favor. They were paid more than they earned. That's unquestionable. The point here is not to point fingers at the owner, who is not unjust, the point is to call attention to the fact that he is good. Really good. At least to some people. He has committed no impropriety. He has cheated no one. Everyone has got at least what they deserved. And some people got more. Go on home. And for the second time in the text, Jesus says this. The last will be first. The first will be last. And this sets us up for the punchline. If I've got you upside down in your thinking, if I've got you inverted, then you can understand what comes next, what you heard a few moments ago in the gospel reading. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said, look, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified. Here's the answer to all the questions. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? How often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? What is just in either case? What is justice when a servant has been forgiven a massive debt and then chokes his fellow servant for 10 bucks that he can't pay? What is lawful in divorcing your wife? What good deed do you have to do to inherit eternal life? You've left everything and followed Jesus? Well, what are you going to get? These last only worked an hour. We've borne the heat of the day. What are we going to get? What is justice? And Matthew 
hammers it home and says, here's justice. Here's an inversion of justice, and here is a perversion of justice. The Son of Man is going to walk to Jerusalem where they are going to kill him. Does he deserve that? Has he borne the burden and heat of the day? Has he left all to serve his master's will? Has he tried to seek out what is good for him? Has he sought a position in the kingdom of God? Has he scrambled to his own advantage? Or did he deny himself and suffer injustice? Justice was both inverted and perverted. Jesus, who deserved no such penalty for crimes he had not committed, would be the object of injustice, and in so doing, he would take away the sins of the world. And in so doing, he would offer to you and to me that which we did not earn and that which we do not deserve. Oh, we have not endured the justice of God. We have endured the goodness of God. The point of the parable is to show us that God could have given us what we deserved, but he gave us so much more. So what is our response? The prayer book gives you the response. You've already said it. Here's the response. This prayer. O Lord, we beseech thee favorably to hear the prayers of thy people. That we, who are justly punished for our offenses, may be mercifully delivered by thy goodness.